Today we are beginning a brand new series, teaching series for Sunday mornings through the New Testament letters written by Peter. And Lord willing, I think we will probably spend the remainder of this year, most of our Sundays together, going through these two letters. And as we get started this morning, if you didn't pick up any of the worship guides in the back, I would encourage you to do so. And those of you who take notes, but even if you're not a note taker, I think maybe today might be a good day to jot down some reminders as we start teaching through these letters. And we're going to begin this morning looking at some of the context around First Peter. And I want to encourage you as we do this that uh, it could seem like an academic exercise only that we would walk through the context or the circumstances in which these letters were written. But I, I want to encourage you that to just jump into the Bible, into any particular chapter or a verse and just start reading and not understand the greater picture of what's happening is, is very similar to just walking into the middle of a movie or a TV show and seeing a scene and, and trying to figure out what's going on. And you have no relation to the greater or bigger picture or plot, if you will. And, and we are called to know the Word, and part of knowing the Word is to know the context around it. So when you go to study Scripture, when you go to read the Bible, and, and I encourage you from time to time to do that, just walking through a book and reading through a book, but spend some time looking at, maybe if you have a study Bible, some of those first pages that explain what's happening as the book is being written. And with that being said this morning, if you don't have a Bible or a good study Bible, we would love to gift you one as a church. So we would encourage you uh, to take one. Nick, you can see Nick anytime today and he'll be glad to give you one of those. So let's take a few minutes and let's look at the context of First Peter. This is not merely an academic exercise. This is to help us understand this letter. And understanding the letter is going to help us get the most out of it. So understanding the times of First Peter. This letter was written approximately 33 years after the ascension of Jesus. I like to date letters of the New Testament based on uh, their relation to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. For me, that just helps me understand the timeline. If Jesus was, as many think, murdered on the cross buried and resurrected around 30 A.D. This letter was written somewhere around 63 A.D. So somewhere between 63 and 64 A.D. this letter was written. So 33, 34 years after the ascension of Jesus. It is written by the Apostle Peter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Peter opens the letter with that introduction. Peter and merely an introductory line. When Peter says, I am writing to you as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he is claiming authority. As a matter of fact, there is no other office in the church that you see in the New Testament that includes the title of Jesus Christ. You see mentioned teachers and shepherds and ministers, but it is the office of apostle that is given in the New Testament this line of Jesus Christ. They were His ordained New Testament messengers. If you remember this from a few weeks ago, we talked about how the Old Testament, I think this was in our sermon on New Testament prophecy, in the Old Testament it was prophets who were given the ordination to speak and write God's very words. In the New Testament, it is apostles. When you see an apostle claiming that title, they are claiming authority. They are sent by Jesus to speak authoritatively into our lives. 
And as we think about an, a letter from an apostle of Jesus, specifically Peter, we are reminded that there is no other book in all of the world like the Bible. Nor has there ever been a book like the Bible. It is the authoritative Word of God. And many of us who have spent years in church and we have some religious background, we know that. We refer to it as that. This is God's Word. It's the Word of God. We can stand on it. And we should. There are many in the world who don't believe that. And it is. This book written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is authoritative for us. What it says, we must believe. Whether we want to believe that or not, whether it correlates with our upbringing or our understanding or not, we must believe what this Word says and we must do what this Word says. But, sometimes we forget that God chose to use normal, everyday human beings to write under the inspiration of the Spirit. And as they wrote, they did not lose or set aside their humanity. When you read these letters, they take on the personality of the person who wrote them. When we say that they wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we do not mean they were simply robots who God dictated to them like, a secretary to a CEO, what he wanted said. But rather, somehow God worked through them, inspiring them to the point that he could say, this word is what I want it to be and says what I want it to say, yet he used their humanity in it. He used their personality. He used their heart. Which means that when we go and we read any letter of the New Testament, but when we read First Peter, yes, it is divine, it is authoritative, But it is a letter from a man, Simon Peter, who wrote from his heart and from his experiences. Simon Barjona, the son of Jonah, not the Old Testament Jonah. Simon was just a guy. He had just a life. He was married. He had a brother named Andrew and they ran a business together. And that business was fishing. He got up every day or went in late at night, early morning to make a living for his family. And his brother Andrew gets introduced to a guy in the wilderness named John the Baptist who introduces him to a guy named Jesus. And Andrew wants his brother to meet this guy and he does. And one day, Simon is going about his job and he's pulled his boat up to the shoreline to go home for the day. And this guy that he met named Jesus shows up and says, I want to borrow your boat for a moment. Simon says, okay. And so Jesus gets in and Jesus says, take me out just a little ways. And so Simon did. And then Jesus teaches from his boat. And at the end of his teaching, as he's teaching the crowds on the shore from the boat, at the end, Jesus says, Hey, Simon, go ahead and throw your nets over. Doesn't look like you've got much today. And Simon says, Jesus, I've been fishing all night and have caught nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. And he brought in an abundant catch that day. And Jesus looks at him and says, follow me. And he does. And he gives up much of his life the way that he knew it in order to follow after Jesus. Simon was the first to confess Christ as Lord. Jesus is saying, who do people say that I am? And they're giving him all the answers. And then Jesus looks at these men that he's called, these disciples, and he says, who do you say I am? Peter's the first to speak up. I believe you're the Christ. Son of God. Jesus looks at him and says, 
This wasn't revealed to you, Simon, by men. My Father showed you this. And on this, I will build my church. He wasn't talking about Peter. It's one of the, it's one of the things the Roman Catholic Church has, they've made Peter their first bishop because they, they misunderstand that Jesus wasn't talking about Peter. He was talking about Peter's confession. He's the first to confess Christ as Lord. But then, just a few days later, short period of time later, Jesus is teaching these guys and He's teaching them about how He's going to have to die on the cross. And Peter, in his boldness and brashness, the first to confess Jesus as Messiah and Lord, stands up and rebukes Jesus and says, no, that will never be. And Jesus looked at Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Again, not referring to Peter as Satan, but referring to Peter's disbelief in what Christ had come to do and his attempted obstacle to what Christ's mission was as of the enemy. Peter boldly claims to Jesus on the last night of his life, I will never abandon you. Every one of these guys may leave you. I will never leave you. They get to the garden and they go to arrest Jesus and it is Simon Peter who is carrying a concealed sword and he pulls it out and he attacks Malchus. The servant of the high priest cuts his ear off. Jesus heals his ear tell Simon Peter that that is not the way to the kingdom and rebukes him. He tells Simon in all of his boldness that you'll never leave me. You're willing to, to do anything to see this not happen. But the reality is in just a few hours, you're going to deny that you ever even knew me. And that's what happened. Peter goes outside the house of the high priest. He's in the courtyard below trying to be hidden. People start noticing him. Wait a minute. Weren't weren't you with Jesus? He says, no, I wasn't. And someone else, wait a minute, weren't, weren't you one of his followers? Aren't you one of the Galileans? And Peter says, I don't even know the guy. The last time he's asked, he is so emphatic that he doesn't know Jesus that he curses on an oath that he never knew Him. And he hears the rooster crow and he remembers what Jesus said and he breaks down. The same thing that happened to Judas when he realized what he had done to Jesus. Peter was one of the first to see Jesus resurrected. He has the honor of preaching at Pentecost. He is given the responsibility of the apostle to the Jews, to his people, to preach to them the gospel. Yet, he has to be rebuked by God in a vision because he refuses to associate with those who aren't Jews. And God has to show him in a vision that you don't call anything unclean that belongs to me. And even having this vision and understanding this and continuing in his ministry, he has to be confronted by Paul for his hypocrisy. Because while he is eating with Jewish Christians, when another group of Jewish Christians show up that doesn't think he should, they press Peter into withdrawing and refusing to eat with the Jewish Christians anymore and excuse me, with the uh, Gentiles, I said that backwards, when the he was eating with Gentile Christians and when this group of Jews showed up, they pressured him into withdrawing from these Gentile Christians and he refused to eat with them, even though God had given him this vision that nothing that belonged to God was unclean. And Paul had to rebuke him for his hypocrisy. And not only did Paul rebuke him for his hypocrisy, but he wrote about it later. I say all of this to us to say this. Peter is just a guy. He is a man who is bold when he should be humble. 
He is a man who is frail and easily swayed when he should be bold. He is a sinful man. But he is called by Jesus. And this letter is written from his experiences. All the ups and all the downs. All of his successes and all of his failures. All of this goes into his writing to the church timelessly that we might learn from him in an authoritative way. Peter was a pastor of the early church and an eyewitness to the ministry and the resurrection of Jesus. We've labeled this series, as a matter of fact, this little tagline, First and Second Peter, pastor and eyewitness. I want us to remember that. The things Peter is writing about, he remembers. He's seen these things up close. He lived this life. He was an eyewitness. And if you, if you want to know more about that, you can read the Gospel of Mark. Because Mark was the young companion of Peter. As a matter of fact, Peter at the end of this first letter, chapter 5, verse 13, I believe it is, calls Mark his son. The Gospel of Mark was Mark writing about Peter's eyewitness testimony. He wrote on behalf of Peter. So you can read that and see all that Peter saw as an eyewitness. But this letter, this letter, we get to hear his heart as a pastor. We get to hear him take all of these eyewitness experiences, all of his failures, all of his successes, and he puts it down in a pastoral letter to the church, calling upon all of his ups and downs and applying to us everything that he has learned, all that he has learned doctrinally and all that he has learned in following Jesus. Written by the Apostle Peter. He wrote this from Rome. He calls it Babylon at the end of the letter. Symbolically referring to Rome. It was written from Rome to local churches throughout what is today modern Turkey. You find Turkey on the map. That is the general area where these churches were scattered. He doesn't write to just one church. This isn't like Paul writing to the church in Corinth. Peter is writing to multiple churches, local congregations throughout this area. Likely, he wrote this letter and then gave it to someone, perhaps Sylvanus, who's mentioned at the very end of the letter. And he gives it to them to take to all the probably large cities of these provinces As a matter of fact, when we open up in just a moment, you're going to see he mentions these areas or these regions. This may have been the very route that the letter was going to take. And they would go to these different regions and then people would make copies of them. And they would take them to these churches in the urban areas and then out to the local rural villages. We don't have any clear indication that Peter ever actually visited these places. He makes no indication that he knew these people personally. So we don't actually know how they came to know about Jesus. But some of these provinces are mentioned in Acts at Pentecost. So it is likely or at least probable that some of these local congregations were started by those converted at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. They heard Peter preach. They went back home in 30 Some odd years later, these are growing churches throughout this area, perhaps started by those converts from Pentecost. It is a mixture, likely of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, but the structure of the letter, it looks like it's primarily Gentiles. Gentiles, anyone who's not Jewish. Peter, although he was an apostle to the Jewish people, is likely writing knowing that most of the audience of this letter will be Gentiles. Those that he once struggled to even understand how he was supposed to relate to. At one time, he didn't know how to relate to Gentiles because of this inherent philosophy that he had that he had to stay separated from them, even as a Christian. 
But he has grown so much that he writes with this genuine love and genuine care and genuine concern for these Gentile Christians that he thought at one point he should stay away from. And why did he write? He wrote to teach doctrinal truths. He wrote to exhort the churches in the proper application of those truths. And he did it at a time of increasing hostility toward true believers. He wrote to teach. He wrote to exhort. And he did it at a time of increasing hostility toward true believers. If you have a Bible and you're not already in First Peter, if you want to go there and actually go to the very end of the letter in chapter 5, verse 12, he gives kind of a summary statement here of his letter. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this, everything he's written, is the true grace of God. Now stand firm in it. So he writes to say, I am declaring to you, teaching you doctrinal truths that belong to the grace of God. I am encouraging, I'm exhorting you to these things. The application of these truths and church, you need to stand firm in it. And here it will help us to understand that Peter writes this letter probably within two to three years of his death. His death, which would come at the hands of the Romans. Who would say, if you love this Jesus so much, we're going to kill you the way he was killed. Peter finds it unworthy, himself unworthy to be crucified as Jesus was. So he's crucified upside down. Hostility is growing at the time of this letter in these Roman provinces. Christianity had kind of a bad name. There was a lot of rumors about Christianity among people who didn't subscribe to it. For example, they were called cannibals because they taught something about eating someone's flesh and drinking someone's blood, which we know to be the Lord's Supper and symbolic of the death and blood of Jesus. They were also called or told to have been sacrilegious because they refused to bow down to the Roman leaders who were considered gods in that day. So there was a lot of hostility in these provinces toward neighbors from neighbors toward Christians. But there was a guy in Rome named Nero. And within maybe a year of this letter being written, this guy who'd been in power for over a decade and was quite the loose cannon, probably certifiably crazy, but malicious, decided to set fire to Rome. And the story goes that he went up into a portion of his headquarters and played music and sang while he watched the city burn. And after the burning had happened to squelch the uproar and save the state, he decided to find somebody to blame for it, so he decided to blame Christians. And this started an immense time of persecution. We are told that during this time, Christians were covered in wax and put in the gardens of Nero and set on fire at night for illumination at his parties. We're told that they were sewn into animal skins and fed publicly to wild dogs as a form of entertainment. And Peter knows what is beginning to happen and he knows what's coming when he writes this letter. A Scottish theologian from the 1600s named Robert Layton said this of 1 Peter, this excellent letter, full of evangelical doctrine and apostolical authority, is a brief yet very clear summary both of the comfort and instructions needful for the encouragement and direction of a Christian in his journey to heaven. 
elevating his thoughts and desires to that happiness and strengthening him against all opposition in his way. The opposition of the corruption from within and the opposition of the temptations and afflictions from without. Faith, obedience, and patience are stressed in this letter in order to establish the readers in believing, to direct them in doing, and to comfort them in suffering. As we go throughout this letter, I want you to watch for some themes. And this is why I said earlier that Maybe good to take notes today. I don't know what you do with the notes when you're done, but this one might be good to set aside and come back to as we walk through the letter. Not only to remind yourself of the context, but to remind yourself of some of the big themes that Peter writes about. We're not going to spend a lot of time on these, but I just want to remind you to watch for these themes as we go throughout this letter. Number one, the work of God on behalf of His people. Peter stresses this, the work of God on behalf of his people. He talks about not only what God has done in Christ, but the work God has done to apply the work of Christ to our lives. Secondly, watch for the theme of pursuing holiness in light of the sacrifice of Jesus. Peter talks a lot about this. Holiness is separating ourselves from sin and being devoted to the glory of God. That's my working definition for holiness. If we just try to separate ourselves from sin, we do so in the flesh and we miss the purpose, which is God's glory. If we try to glorify God and live the way we want to and not separate ourselves from sin, we're not actually glorifying God at all. Holiness is both. And Peter stresses this. Because of what God has done on your behalf through Christ, be holy. A third big theme you'll see in this letter is living as the church in a fallen world. Living as the church in a fallen world because God has worked on behalf of His people. We should pursue holiness. And church, it matters how we live. We should be good neighbors if we can. He says we should be good citizens. He says it matters what kind of marriages we have. It matters what kind of churches we have. We should be godly leaders. We should be godly members. And he talks about serving one another. He talks about throughout this letter what it looks like to live as a church in a fallen world. And we're going to see the scene, the theme of suffering. The sufferings of Christ and His followers. Some would say this letter is all about suffering. I, I don't think that is a great summary. Because the, the letter is much more than just suffering or teaching about suffering. It's a lot more than that. But there is no doubt Peter writes much about suffering. And there are, I will say, principles in these passages, general principles that we can As let us who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. What should we do when we suffer? Not because of what we've done, but because of God's will. We should trust God and seek to do good. And that is a general principle that we can apply in any trial. But we must say that the sufferings Peter is writing about are very specific. They are the sufferings that we will face for being a Christ follower. It's persecution and suffering for following Jesus. That's what he writes about. Sometimes that looks like what we think. Sometimes it doesn't. Imagine two people who meet and they fall in love and they're dating for a few years and they love each other. They love each other's family. They care for one another. They're planning to get married. Maybe they've gotten engaged. And one night, the lady of that couple is invited to go to a revival and she goes. And at that revival, she hears about Jesus and she is saved. And she goes home and she tells her fiancé all about Jesus and he doesn't want anything to do with it. The reality is the Bible would tell her not to marry that person. That's suffering. 
There's people in the world today whose very parents will disown them for coming to confess Jesus. That's suffering. Sometimes we are called to lay down what we don't want to lay down, believe what we don't want to believe, do what we don't want to do, and we do it for Jesus. But there will be suffering involved. And there will be times where we will be persecuted. I'll be honest with you. We act really surprised when that happens. We act really taken aback. I can't believe they're treating Christians that way. I can't believe I would be ostracized for my beliefs. And the reality is, the Bible tells us to expect it. it. Tells us we'll be blessed when it happens. That type of suffering, Peter will cover in this letter. And how to live in the midst of it. And then finally, this big theme that you cannot get away from in First Peter. God's sovereignty over everything. Everything. When I say God's sovereignty, I mean His control, His provision, His love, His care for His people, and His direction of all human history. God's sovereignty does not mean we are robots. Doesn't mean we don't have choices. Doesn't mean we can't impact our lives or outcomes. But it does mean in the end, we are going where God is taking us. Human history is going where God is taking it. I always think about Jonah. the This time the one from the Old Testament. He's told, go to Nineveh, preach. He's told that at the very beginning of the letter. Spoiler alert, no matter what, Jonah was going to Nineveh. He was going there on his own two feet, or he was going in the belly of a great fish, but he was going to Nineveh. Because God had sovereignly declared that He would. Peter writes about these things. And he shows us throughout this letter, maybe in a way that's going to challenge us, that God is sovereign over everything. So with that brief introduction, I know that you're comfortable. I know this is not how we normally do this. But if you are willing and able to stand for the reading of God's Word, please do so as we look at the first two verses of First Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctity, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Father, I ask, as we begin this journey together, through this letter that you have inspired through your apostle Peter, that we would learn doctrinally what You want us to learn, that we would receive the exhortations of how to apply those doctrinal truths and that we would stand firm in our faith. And as Kevin said earlier in our prayer time before the service, God, may we know that You have every week of this year you will have us studying what we need to study at the right time. It is in Your name we pray. Amen. So I want us to look at the first two verses this morning from First Peter, and I want us to look at timeless truths that we see in these two verses. Timeless truths for the Christian from First Peter chapter 1. Number one, timeless truth number one from what we just read. You are, as a believer, a resident alien on the earth. You are a resident alien on the earth. Peter, in writing to these churches in Asia Minor, under the inspiration of the Spirit, knowing that this letter now is going to go out to all churches for all time, Peter calls the church the exiles of the dispersion. That word exile can be translated as sojourner. 
is an old Old Testament term or an alien, a foreigner. The best phrase of exile from a New Testament perspective is the one who resides as an alien. So just think about the terminology. You live here. You live on the earth. You live in Pinson or surrounding communities. But this isn't your home. And you may say, this is the only place I've ever lived. This is the only place I've ever known. Yes, you're a resident. But it's not your home. It's not your final home. It's not where you're actually from in a spiritual sense. That word dispersion probably doesn't mean much to us. But it would have meant something to those who originally read this letter, especially if they were Jewish. Because dispersion or dispersed was a term that was used to describe the Jewish people scattered throughout the earth ever since their exile from Israel 600 years before this letter was written. When God put them out of their land by the Assyrians and the Babylonians because of their disobedience. And ever since then, the Jewish people have been called the dispersion or the diaspora. The Jewish people, one people scattered throughout the earth. And so what is what does Peter do here? The Jewish people that read this in the churches would have known it, probably the Gentiles, because it was a common term. Peter takes this and he applies it to the church. He says, you are the church of the dispersion, the dispersion. You are the dispersion. We belong to a local church called Agape in Pinson, but we are not the totality of the church. Every true church in this community that teaches about Jesus are part of the true church, but it's not just here. It's not just in Alabama, not just in the United States. Throughout the world is scattered the church that God through Jesus will one day call back to Himself. Edmund Clowney, who was a theologian who wrote good commentary on First Peter, he said this, talking about how our dispersion in the New Testament relates to the dispersion of the Jews. The Pharaohs exploited Israel as a workforce of undesirable aliens. They were despised and feared. And after God delivered these despised aliens in the Exodus, Israel became a pilgrim people journeying through the wilderness to the land of promise. That wilderness experience becomes the model for understanding how God's people should live in pilgrimage. God meets with them in the wilderness. He teaches them. He tests them. He leads them day and night. He feeds them with bread from heaven and water from a rock. And He places His tent or His dwelling among them. His care watched over their journey until they reached their home. The place where God would dwell with them. That path through the wilderness is therefore the way of the Lord that leads to life. Peter recognizes the church as the new Israel. And we're on our own pilgrimage. Many of these people who would have got this letter and read Exiles of the Dispersion would have said, I've lived here my whole life. I've never been anywhere but this little village. Yet Peter called them resident aliens of the Dispersion. Because Peter sees them as sojourners on a pilgrimage to their final home, the promised land where they will be with Jesus forever. But Peter also knows that they have to be ready to live in this land for years and years and years. And so you're going to see throughout this letter that he's going to show concern for how they live and how their lifestyle should not be overcome by the world because they're aliens of it. But they're also not given a command to fight the world or flee from it in isolation. They are called to be ambassadors to this world. While they are resident aliens, they are supposed to be ambassadors for the kingdom that they are journeying to. Church, it is not for us to go into our own holy huddle and put up the walls and live there until Jesus comes back. It is also not for us to act like the rest of the world and be like the rest of the world. We are ambassadors for the kingdom that we are traveling to. 
And Peter reminds us of that. The church, the exiles of the dispersion. But he also calls us the elect, which leads us to timeless truth number two. You have a privileged status before God. You as a believer have a privileged status before God. You are not just exiles of the dispersion, you are elect exiles of the dispersion. Which means you are chosen resident aliens. That word, elect, is used 22 times in the New Testament. And every single time, it it refers to God choosing a group of people from another group of people. And in that choosing of God from a group of people, they become recipients of a great privilege. They become recipients of a great blessing. And the Gentiles and the Jews would have had no problem hearing this term referred to Israel because throughout the Old Testament, Israel is called God's chosen people. But now Peter applies it to the church. And he says, while Israel was once the chosen people, it is now the church. You are elect exiles of the dispersion. And God will protect you and preserve you and bless you as He did His people in the wilderness. Timeless truth number three. Your situation is in accordance with the love and care of your Father. The situation that you are in, even today, accords with the love and care of your Father. Notice after verse 1, Peter says, I'm writing to you the elect exiles of the dispersion scattered throughout all of these regions. And then he, in verse 2, says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Foreknow in Scripture is not a a verb that simply means to know before. We can... We can try to relate it that way, but if you look at the syntax, the verbs, the way it's used, it's simply not exactly what it means in its totality. It doesn't mean God just knew facts. For no in the Bible is used to describe God's personal knowing. That He personally knowed someone or knew someone in a loving, in a caring, in a fatherly way. And in Scripture... It is often mentioned that this foreknowing happened before the world began. 1 Corinthians 8.3 uses the term that way. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. Known personally. God has known you. When the Bible says this is happening according to the foreknowledge of God, it's not just saying this is happening, God knew that it would. It's saying this is happening in accordance to the love and the care that God has for you. So the question is, what is this? When we say this is happening in accordance to God's personal and loving care for you, the way it is written, I believe it's clear, all of verse 1 is the this. You are the elect exiles of the dispersion according to the foreknowledge of God. You are in Pontius Galatia and Cappadocia according to the foreknowledge of God. You are in Asia and Bithynia according to the foreknowledge of God. You are living in a time of hostility toward God's people according to the foreknowledge of God. You are going to face persecution for being a believer according to the foreknowledge of God. According to His personal and loving care for you. I know that in these two verses, there's a lot of words and there's a lot of topics there that we chew on and debate and discuss as believers. And I know that for some, the very idea that God has foreknown, planned or purposed our lives in specific ways, can sometimes be rattling to us. I think it's in part because we have this temptation that we want to let God off the hook for things that He doesn't ask to be let off the hook for. But I want to say to us this morning, 
that regardless of how these things hit you, elect exiles of the dispersion according to the foreknowledge of God, no matter how it hits you, that I'm saying that your situation was foreknown by God, whatever that looks like, I hope that in that you will consider for a moment the comfort of it. That there is absolutely nothing that is happening to you or has happened to you or will happen to you that was not according to the foreknowledge of God. That there is not a moment of your life where you are outside of the personal, loving care of your Father who has all authority and all power to do whatever He pleases. I hope that you find comfort in knowing that your situation is not up to chance. You are not the product of circumstance. He has purposed you where you would live, in the times you would live there. He has foreknown you. And I believe Peter means that. For great comfort, especially knowing what's about to happen in the next few years for many of these Christians. That even when that persecution starts, they would be able to remember we're the elect exiles of the dispersion. And this is according to the foreknowledge of God. In that timeless truth, Number four, you are gradually and assuredly being changed from the inside out. You are gradually and assuredly being changed from the inside out. Peter chooses to modify first, uh, verse 1 with two more statements. He says, "You, this situation you are in is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus and for sprinkling with His blood. So he says, God foreknew your situation. And He is right now today presently working in that situation. It doesn't mean that He just knew that this was going to happen or that He purposed for it to happen, but even right now He is working in the current situation you are in. And what is He using it for? Your sanctification. Your growth in holiness. You're becoming more like Jesus. I said this a couple of weeks ago. I absolutely believe there are some trials we can avoid. I think some trials, some sufferings come along because of our choices and because of how we live. But I also believe there are certain trials that we can avoid because they have been planned for our sanctification. Even the ones we cause, God is gracious to use them for that purpose. But He has foreknown us that He would presently work in us for a future purpose. And what is that future purpose? Obedience to Jesus. God is working in your life right now so that you can obey Jesus tonight. God is working in your life right now so you can be obedient to Christ more than you have been next week. Next month, God knows where he's going to take you and what he's going to do with you. And he knows what you are going to need when you get there. And he's preparing you now for that. That's his sanctification for obedience to Jesus. And Peter adds this term for sprinkling with his blood. What does that mean? It means that we are not always going to be perfectly obedient. That even though God has foreknown our situation and that He is presently working in us, and He's doing so for a future purpose that we will more and more and more and more obey Jesus, He knows we're not going to perfectly obey Jesus. So what will we need? We will need daily cleansing by the blood of Christ. I hope you were here last week. If not, you can go back and listen to the message from last week on confession. That is the sprinkling that is the daily cleansing when we confess our sins and He is faithful to forgive us of our sins. I also want you to notice the work of the Trinity there. 
It is God the Father who has foreknown us. It is the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us. And it is Jesus Christ who receives our obedience. Our glory. Our, our praise to His glory. Because of our obedience. In this pilgrimage, God's purpose for your life is that you would be more like Jesus. That you would obey Jesus more. And He is working to make that happen. And then finally, timeless truth number five. Church, you can prayerfully expect God's increased spiritual blessings in your life. You can prayerfully ask for and expect God's increased spiritual blessings. This is what Peter prays at the beginning of this letter. Church, elect exiles of the dispersion according to the foreknowledge of God. Those of you being sanctified for obedience to Jesus... I pray that the grace and the peace of Christ would be multiplied to you. Not just you would have a little of it. I pray over and over and over daily, every moment of your life, you would have the grace, the kindness of God, that you would have the peace, the blessings of God in increasing measure, even in the midst of hard circumstances, in every moment, May the grace and peace of Christ increase to you. You, church, can pray for that. You can ask the God of mercy to increase in your life grace and peace, spiritual blessings, and, and He will. I want us to end thinking about this picture from this morning that Kevin read and then Lamar read, but specifically John 21. Jumping back in Peter's life 33 some odd years earlier. Jesus takes Peter through this restoration. Peter denied him three times. Jesus gives him a chance to confess him three times. And every time at the end of his confession, Peter says to him, You love me? Okay. Feed my sheep. Pastor my people. Take care of other believers. Love them well. If you love me, you will love them. That's a specific call for Peter. It's a specific call for pastors, but it's a general call for all of us. Do you love Christ? Love His people. Love the frail people. Love the hard people. Love the angry people. Love them all. Love His people. But then at the end, Jesus looks at Peter, the one who had said, I'll go wherever you go. I'll do whatever you say. And hours later, denied Him three times out of fear. Jesus said to him after that third confession, Peter, I tell you that when you were young, when you were younger, you had a lot of freedom. You went where you wanted to go. Dressed yourself. Did what you wanted to do. Peter, I'm telling you what's ahead. You're going to have to pick up your cross. As you get older, as you walk into what I'm about to send you into, you're going to have to go places you don't want to go. You're going to have to do things you don't want to do. You're going to have to love people you don't want to love. And at the end of it all, you're going to die a death you don't want to die. And then he says, so follow me. That's quite different than the American version of a call to Christ. Come and be rich. Come and be healthy. Come and be happy. I don't deny that God can do whatever He chooses. And He chooses to bless His people sometimes financially. He chooses to bless His people with health. He chooses to bless His people in a wide variety of ways. But there is not a single Christian that doesn't get the call. Pick up your cross and follow me. You're going to have to go places you don't want to go. You're going to have to do things you don't want to do. You may be persecuted along the way. It may not turn out the way you want it to. None of us get to avoid that call. If we're going to follow Jesus, that's, that's the way. But, but, 
what Peter is teaching us 33 years later is that the grace and the peace and the provision and the blessings and the care and the love of God will always be with us. Nothing will happen that He doesn't allow. Nothing will come into our lives that He doesn't ordain. And even if we mess up, He will restore us. Even if we deny Him, He will restore us. Even when we fall down, He will pick us up and sprinkle us with His blood. If you're a believer. So I want to ask if you guys will bring the lights down, the worship team will come up. I want to ask this morning, are you a believer? I'm not asking, have you prayed a prayer in church? I am asking, have you chosen, because of the grace of God, to pick up your cross and follow Jesus? And you say, I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know what that's going to mean. You don't have to. Are you willing to follow Him? To be sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Him wherever He calls you, whatever He asks you to do. And if your answer to that is yes, because He is Lord, then the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Confess Jesus as Lord of your life. Confess that you will follow Him. Knowing that you're going to fall down, but believing He will pick you up and sprinkle you with His blood and forgive you of your sins. And today, you will be saved. And then I encourage you to tell someone. Come find me before the service is over. Come talk to Nick. Let us know. I want, I want to follow Christ or I want to talk about what this means. If you come to me, I'll get your information and we'll talk later today. And then be baptized. The first thing we're told to do when we come to know Christ, be baptized. The first thing we're told to do, I'm going to follow Jesus. He says, okay, be baptized. As a public declaration of faith. And then grow. Grow in the grace of God. When I ask you this morning, we're about to sing together. When I ask you to, whatever it looks like for you to be in a posture of worship, would you please do so? Stand if you're willing and able. If that is it, come to the altar, to these stairs, kneel at your chair. Where you have wandered away, where you've not followed, would you ask Jesus to restore you today? He will. We're about to sing. And in this song that we're going to sing, part of the lyrics are, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. Will you believe that today? Will you sing that to Him today? I want to ask Kevin if he would come up. Rob, are you able to do to do that? Rob and Kevin, and I'll join them in just a minute. We're going to be over here. If you need prayer for anything, if you want to talk about your relationship with Jesus, if you need healing, whatever's going on in your life, in this pilgrimage that we're on, if you need prayer, we'll pray with you. After the service, if you don't want to come down front right now, that's fine. Come tell us you want prayer. We'll go into the prayer room when the service is done. If you feel like going to pray for someone in this room, do so. If you feel the Lord has spoke to you today a word, come tell me about it. Do anything but just sleepily wait for the end. Respond to God. Respond to His Word. Do so now in worship to our Lord. Father, thank You for Your timeless truths. Help us now to respond to You. I trust Your working miracles even right now. We may not see the harvest today, but I pray we do. Father, move in this place. Even if this morning, if in our hearts we don't feel like You're doing anything, God, would, we, would You please do something in us and help us to trust that You are. 
God, work miracles in this place. Work your spirit in this place. Help us to love each other. Pray for each other. Give us obedient and joyful hearts. In your name we pray. Amen.